I'm Lily. I'm Lorraine. And we're, we're caffeinated on, on the train. train. <laughs> Hi, who are you? Hi, my name is Lily, and I'm a master's student at Freie Universität. <laughs> Freie Universität. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why that's funny. F-U. F-U. <laughs> Even better. I really want to get, like, a shirt or something that says F-U on it. Right, yeah. Um, what do people do? Uh, Obviously, when people say it, like, in German, they say F-U. Yeah. But, like, what do English people call it? Do we call it F-U? F-U. I've heard F-U. Yeah. Honestly, I've heard F-U. And it's like, uh-huh, yeah, F-U. Uh-huh. Oh, like, sometimes I call it Freya. Yeah. Just to, like, avoid saying F-U. I never say the free university. No. Who That's would say weird. that? That's like... That's like an American who's talking about it, and you'd be like, eh, I don't know. Uh, anyway, so, yeah. A master's student in English, literature, language, and culture. <laughs> and I did my undergraduate at Cornell University, where I majored in uh, sociology and international development with a concentration on inequality studies. Uh, little known fact. Um, I graduated in 2015, and then I um, well, I finished my degree in Denmark, where I was studying international development, and then I moved to Berlin, where I was working as a freelance writer. And otherwise, traveling around, um, I lived in um, Buenos Aires, Argentina for a bit, and I think that also really shaped me, and in terms of kind of um, the literary traditions I'm interested in, and also sort of the kind of political values that underlie what I'm interested in, and some of my areas of academic interest are um, the rise of fascism, um, social, critical social theory, particularly like the dialectic and also the uh, field of epistemology. And, yeah, that's pretty much it. I'm a Marxist. <laughs> pretty much, I don't know. You're, you're wearing, like, I red and black things. right now. I feel yeah. like you look very Marxist. Yeah, I, I, I wear a lot of red and black, actually. I've noticed that, too. It's actually, so do I. <laughs> yeah, that's... Feel feel at home in those yeah. those colors. I'm, I'm not a Marxist, <clears throat> but they are just, like, very aesthetic. They're very aesthetic colors. Which is the aesthetic aesthetics and uh, political movements is something that we're both interested in. Yes. I would say at some <laughs> point. Prepare yourself, dear listener. <laughs> I speak Spanish, and yeah, interested in kind of post-colonial or things outside of the Western canon as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think that's pretty much all I would say for now about myself. Okay. And you? Your turn. I'm Lorraine. I'm from Canada. Um, I'm also a master's student of English literature and other stuff at the Freie Universität Berlin. Um, I did my undergrad at the University of Prince Edward Island on the east coast of Canada. Um, And I wrote my thesis on Madison Kawine, a little-known American poet, uh, which sparked my interest in little-known poets, both because I think that they can have very interesting, very telling perspectives, and also because it means I have to do way less secondary research, <laughs> which I'm all about. <laughs> Strategy is important. Yes. Cue in <laughs> for this kind of high-quality academic <laughs> advice. We're full of it. Yeah. Let me tell you. If you don't want to do research, just do your paper on a topic no, no one, one has ever cared about. <laughs> easy. It's easy. Yeah. It's very easy to find. Get your master's degree. Yeah, this is not unrelated to my deep and abiding love for bad artists. Mm. Bad poetry is my jam. She's, a, she's got a lot of interesting things to say about that, actually. 
I a lot can, of interesting things. I can give like a whole speech on all of the um, moral, ethical reasons that we need to read bad poetry, besides the fact that it's easier to research. <laughs> Although that is important. That's, yes. We're not not saying that. <laughs> but we're not only saying that. Right. Um, um, so my, my interests include uh, the transmission of stories across time and culture, which mm-hmm. I call narrative appropriation, um, and also authors who have been left out of the canon for various reasons, like being bad, um, but also being middlebrow or uh, minorities of social, political, religious, ethnic, gender, etc. Um, I, I love Ezra Pound memes. <laughs> Ezra Pound slash Wyndham Lewis. Fanfic. <laughs> yeah. That's that's all I have to say about myself for now. <laughs> for now. This is the most important thing. So what have you been reading lately? What have I been reading lately? Um, actually, just on the way over on the tram, I finished um, The Trial by Kafka. Ooh. And I, this week I also started um, Politics of Modernism by Raymond Williams, as well as uh, Fables of Aggression by Friedrich Jameson, which is about uh, Wyndham Lewis and whether or not he was a fascist. I just, like, can't believe you have a whole book devoted to it. He actually says no. I mean, I I just started it, but uh, I've heard that he says no. But then in, in the appendix, he has a chapter that's called, I don't know if it's a chapter if it's in the appendix, but it's called Hitler, the Victim. So um, Oh. Yeah. I might skip right to that. That sounds like the most interesting. But there's a lot of stuff also about uh, Wyndham Lewis's, I think, his kind of relationship with sexuality, which we know is, like, very strange. A little bit fraught. Yeah, he's repressed, I, I would wager to say. But, uh, yeah, so th- those are, I guess those are, it was, oh, I also want to read, I think, Reflections by uh, ben- Benjamin. There's, oh. Uh, various sections I think will be useful to my term paper. Yeah, that was on the reading list, wasn't it? Uh, well, I think it probably was, and I feel, I've just seen it referenced a lot, and it's, I have the book, and I, I just haven't read it, and I think... I think he has a lot of things kind of about aesthetics and, and the kind of role of um, art and culture, especially I think he's kind of the same persuasion as the Frankfurt School, and they're very interested in, like, shocked by the rise of fascism, so it's all kind of framed in that regard, so I think it'll be useful. That sounds like a heavy-lifting reading it's got list. some <laughs> stuff going on, yeah. And you? Um, so I just finished this book that I got from the JFKI library on queer cowboys. Mm. So it's basically like a reading of a bunch of cowboy stories from the 19th century and about how gay they are in various ways. So It's definitely like a very gay motif today. Really, know? yeah. So it's quite interesting. Apparently that dates back to quite early in the genre mm. um, in that a lot of them were about these like all-male relationships, yeah. women are kind of not part of the picture. And you could definitely read that as not erotic, but just sexist. Which is a, yeah. But also, <laughs> yeah. sometimes it gets a little like... Is that willful ignorance if you're doing that? Like, <laughs> Yes. Are you? <laughs> just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the, um, the book has a section at the end specifically about like erotic um, portrayals. Which has it's a, a picture very hairy chested man. That's Mark Twain. Is it? Oh yeah. my gosh, it is. Yeah. And unfortunately, huh. the podcast listeners will not be able to see this see picture. It. Unfortunately, <laughs> that could be the cover of this podcast episode. That's a very good idea. <laughs> Actually, yeah. so tell me more about Mark Twain. 
Um, in, in that this situation right now, <laughs> I, I don't know what situation led to him getting photographed shirtless. You no, know, taking photographs back then wasn't like it is today. You know, like that that was like a pretty. <laughs> they thought about that, and he's sitting there probably for a while. Like <laughs> it's bringing like, a lot of equipment in yeah. <laughs> to get this picture. Yeah, exactly. I specifically like that from the neck up. He looks exactly like he does in all the other pictures. Yeah, he's just not wearing jury's it. out exactly about yeah. So yeah, yo, I'm um, but apparently he wrote um, like dirty poetry for these like men's clubs that existed. Hmm. This is very academic and related to all of the things I study. You know what also is unfortunately, uh, I mean it depends on who you are, but I feel I have learned a lot about Walt Women's Penis this this year. <laughs> it's just yeah, it's coming up everywhere, right? Do you see it too? On Walt Whitman in here. Yeah. It's like look, yeah. he's written with um, My God. In the title of this, yes, I don't know how to pronounce chapter three. American satir- Satira. Satira. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Satirisis. But it's You're gonna about, have to find out. It's yeah. about Whitman and also these other people who wrote like erotic memoirs. Yeah. So. As I said, you know, I didn't see that coming. Sometimes uh, grad school surprises you. Sometimes your research takes you to unexpected places, but that's one of them for me so far. <laughs> Thesis topic. Yes. The various uh, portrayals and conceptions of Walt Women's Penis. <laughs> yeah. Swerve hard in the double nurse presentation. Yeah. So Ruth, if, you know, if you, if you were competent enough, I think you could get away with it. Probably. I don't really have much more to say on that. Okay, so <laughs> on that, but uh, yeah, you don't have much more. to but say. But I can find out. I I can. I have the tools now. They say that. They say there's a saying that when you do your bachelor's degree, you can answer a question definitively that you don't know. As your master's, you can say I don't know, but I can find out. And with your PhD, you can say it is not known. <laughs> so I can now say I don't know this answer about Walman's penis, but I can find out for you. So great! I so look on. forward to hearing. Yeah, your next answer. next week. <laughs> Tune in next update. Time. Um. Yeah. So that sounds like a good book. Yeah. It was also yeah. short. Which... Business or pleasure? Are you reading this book? Uh pleasure. Pleasure. Right. Obviously. Obviously. <laughs> um. I I feel like reading any kind of academic text at this stage is kind of business because mm-hmm. it is. But it's also. Hopefully, kind of pleasure. Exactly. Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. See, so now that I've finished this, I'm reading uh, "Reading the Medieval in Early Modern England" mm. by Gordon McCullen and David Matthews, which is a much more businessy book, mm. but it's still fun to read because I'm learning things. Yeah. Well, you know, I feel like I've heard you talk about the medieval mm. period with an affinity that I. Being that I I studied sociology, so I don't always have the kind of wherewithal. But what do you what do you feel are the import? What is the importance of the medieval era in terms of kind of its implications or influence on the following epochs in literature? That's a great question. You know, what do you love about the medieval? What do you think is important for us to know about it? I think a big reason that medieval is so important is that everyone after the medieval was basically defining themselves against it. And that's a lot of what this book is about, is how the Renaissance styled itself mm. in relation to the medieval. And a big part of that was, like, they tried to make the Middle Ages look crappy. Mm. Um, so that it's like, wow, everything's so new and shiny. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's 
obviously it's never that simple. It's never like everything sucked and then everything was great. Yeah. There was a lot of continuity. Absolutely. And then like after the Renaissance, people have kind of gone back and forth on whether. Mm, that's true. Um, <clears throat> in, in my beloved Victorian age, there was this big resurgence of popularity uh, with medieval stuff. Like, wow, maybe things didn't magically become great in the year 1400. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, people before that were onto some things. They had these strong communities. That's very uh, Foucauldian of you as well. He's, uh, yeah, he loves that second reading of history. Well, me and Second, me third, Foucault. or fourth, <laughs> maybe fifth or sixth. Um, well, yeah, because I feel like when you say that, do you feel like in a way the kind of romantics is connected also in this regard? Yeah, absolutely. I guess that makes sense because, yeah, I think, the enlight- I mean, the Enlightenment, I feel like it's connected with the Renaissance and then maybe the Romantic is referring, when they're talking about the past or when they're talking about these kind of counter-Enlightenment ideas, maybe they're kind of drawing from medieval. This is one of the big things. This is actually like one of the key qualities of the Romantic period mm. artistically is medievalism. Mm, okay. Um, it's like incorporating medieval motifs and that carried on very much into the Victorians, especially the Pre-Raphaelites. Crew, yeah, 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 the loves of my life, and then, then from there, you can talk about the way the modernists. You could, you don't have to. You don't have to. (laughs) You could talk about the modernists, (laughs) but, but uh, yeah, I see how it's all kind of connected as you're putting it. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I feel, I feel like all of artistic history in specifically England, because that's what I know about, is like constantly fluctuating between wanting to be ancient Greece and wanting to be the Middle Ages. Yeah. There's like a yeah, weird I see that. pendulum swing. Yeah. 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 And that also makes me think of um, the way that classicism and kind of the connection, again, this is very dialectical, but the, the kind of relationship of the past and the present in fascism, which is... What I'm always thinking about, it's always, it always comes back to fascism for me. But uh, I think that's quite interesting as well because I think that they also grapple a lot with um, a kind of relationship with whether or not to like reject or embrace the past and what parts of the past. And, and is I think that the other thing that we've talked about before is that it's not even just about the eras or the epochs themselves. It's also about their cultural significance in the present. Absolutely. Or what was the present and now, and now the past. So, like, the Victorians. It takes on its own life, you could say, mm-hmm. which I think is an important element of all this, too. And the kind of cultural significance that something has is, is sometimes even separate from whatever the original thing is. Yeah, like, absolutely. Like, what medieval or Victorian mean are completely different things as we use them today than they would have meant would have to meant a person living in 1300 precisely. or, like, 1850. Yeah, precisely, precisely. Um, and I think that's an important thing to remember. And it comes up a lot also when we talked about um, fascist art and how it doesn't even really matter necessarily whether the artist intended for it to have fascist motifs because that's the kind of way that it was contextualized and made significant by the powers that be, then that's kind of becomes what is important. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think it's both. I don't think you can say that you can reject, you know, the intention of the artist altogether, but I think that's an interesting kind of point in terms of the way that these terms are never, uh, what's the word? They're never static, mm-hmm. and they always kind of change depending on the context with which they're used. Yeah, and the the relative importance of the author is kind of like what we were talking about in the evening modernism 
class on mm. Tuesday. Yes. It's like that's one way of reading it, and you could form a an interpretive community around yes. that reading. Yes. But you could also choose to form your community around how a later critic interpreted it. And if yes. that later critic said, like, we should use this as fascist propaganda. Then, like, that can be, yeah. It, that can be become what kind of leaves its mark on, on history and the narrative of history. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was an interesting reading. I mean, personally, I don't know if I necessarily loved the actual reading of the reading, but I think the implications of that reading of Iser are interesting because there is this kind of assumption that, and I think this, is, this, this spreads across many disciplines, this kind of idea, and kind of what it means to be part of a culture in terms of the, the references, like when we read The Road Less Traveled and how these things take on their own implications. And, and, and it kind of joins us all or shows the way that we are all kind of connected in these uh, or not connected in, in these kind of... Because I've never even read that poem, actually. But, of course, I know what that... You at least know, like, the last two lines. Yeah, of course. And, and it almost doesn't even matter. I mean, it doesn't matter that I read the poem or not. In the sense of, like, the idea that the cultural significance transcends the text itself or even what the author intended, which, as we said, we don't even know for sure what he really said, yeah. Robert Frost, on that, you know? Or what he really... He said the roads are the same, also. He, he said that they had been traveled an equal amount, and then he was like, I took the one less traveled. Mm, that's what it. The, what? And we're all like, oh my god. Less you? traveled. Wow. That's this... We're going to use that for some neoliberal <laughs> propaganda. That means he pulled himself up by his own bootstraps, kids. Yep, that's, that's what he was getting at That's there. what he meant. <laughs> But it's very individualistic, clearly, because yeah. like you should always do the thing that no one else is doing. That's and if what you he said. do, you deserve what you get. Yeah, what success you reap from that. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't, that's on you, man. That's not our fault. Right. That's clearly what the entire the government was saying. Yeah. <laughs> wow. What have you done this last week? <laughs> um, this last week, I gave a presentation for. Our morning class on minor modernists. Yes, we are in a class about minor modernists together, a seminar and a tutorial, and we will be referencing it a lot, so just thought you should uh, be privy to that information. (laughs) Yes, the class is with uh, Professor Dr. Andreas Mahler and Professor Dr. Ulla Hasselstein. Um, So it's a joint taught class between the departments of English and American Studies at Freie Universität. And there are, like, 70 people in the class. Hmm. So it's not so much a seminar as, like... A blob of <laughs> just people sitting in desks. If there's an... I mean, some people are sitting in desks, some are standing. Um, yeah. A lot of people sit on the floor. Population fluctuates yeah. from day to day. Yeah, it's <laughs> almost the end of the semester, so, like, there's probably about 30 people in yeah, the class Yeah, it's now. funny how that can happen. What? But, hey, they... Different different vibes in German university because they wanted us. They were like, some of you need to leave this class. We there's, there's that's the only solution. Is some of you we want you some, discourage some of you from taking this class. Yes. That was Get how out. it opened. So, I mean, over time it seemed to have worked. Yeah. <laughs> but but very colorful discussions, very interesting subject matter. Yeah. I think. <laughs> but it does depend on your opinion of the modernists. I don't like them, but I do feel that the subject is very relevant and topical when it comes to understanding the rise of fascism. This is true. I but, I also do not like them. <laughs> I mean, there are, a lot of them are insufferable people. We we know enough about them that a lot of them sucked as people. They they a lot of them were fascists, for example. This is a bad quality. Generally. So. <laughs> 
Um, so, they yes, they are. Many of them, I will not say all, but many of them. I'm not going to name names. I'm not going to name names, but Ezra Powell. Gwen <laughs> <Quinn> and Lewis. <laughs> honestly. Uh, with with terrible politics and terrible aesthetics. Yeah, honestly. That was their, so clunky, so ugly. That's, but that was the whole goal, right? Make, it was. Make it, it ugly. It doesn't matter anymore. If We're people, so cynical. If people like it, that means you're doing it wrong. Wrong. God. It's like the most annoying hipsters. <laughs> but I do, I do really admire Ezra Pound's ability to have just unilaterally made himself the most important person in literature. Yeah, honestly, it's I don't. If, like he he said the audacity. I am the most important. My poetry is better, and everyone was just like, right. Those two lines were the greatest poem ever written. <laughs> was it something? What's the first part of that poem? I remember something about a bow. Yeah, like, the second part is petals on a wet black bow. That's it. But what's the first part? It's like faces at the metro station. Petals yes. Petals on a wet black bow. Yes. I'm over it. Great. Yeah. Good, solid sentence there, Ezra. Vibes. But we all Just, forget about the time. We don't have anything to say. Yeah. We all forget <laughs> about the time he wrote, elephants are very big. Yeah. Motor cars go fast. Yeah, when he fat shamed Amy Lowell and put a... <laughs> put a water basin. What did he put? No, a bathtub. A bathtub. On his head. <laughs> At a dinner. We all want to forget about that. We all want to forget about it. He was obviously drunk. He probably didn't mean that that would be something that two grad students would be talking about, like, almost 100 years later. Maybe I'm sure she later. meant for that. I'm sure yeah. everyone else at the party was like, God. I hope that no one ever knows I'm here. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a lot of different accounts of that night, actually. Yeah. My, my favorite. Because, like, I feel like if I was there as Amy Lowell, yeah. I, like, couldn't even be offended because I'm like... Ezra, you're, you're making, making such a fool of yourself. Of yourself. Yeah. It's like, he's he's trying to insult Amy, but like, who comes out of this looking like Yeah, who's man? coming really, yeah, who's coming out on top in that situation? <laughs> Honestly. The person who lugs in a bathtub. Where did he get that? Did he Where just, did he, did I, he have it ready? Was he planning this? He might have been. God. Or did he just like leave and find a bathtub? Rat. I don't know. He had Wyndham waiting. Wyndham wasn't allowed to, like, come to the actual. <laughs> With this whole idea that he's, like, so beta to, to Ezra Pound. It's, it's true. It's true. It's true. He's whipped. He's whipped. He definitely, he actually definitely is. There's, there's plenty, there's plenty of evidence it's to canon. suggest. Yeah, yeah. We don't even need to, we don't even need to point it out. It's all right in front of you, dear reader. He's like need to do is look. almost as whipped as Ezra is for Marinetti. Yeah, yeah, Marinetti's. There's, he's he's the. He comes out on top, I guess. Marinetti's the top. <laughs> so I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah. This could only go in one direction. <laughs> um, <laughs> so anyway, you gave a presentation on the canon. <laughs> right. <laughs> then that's what we were. <laughs> no, yeah. we were definitely planning to talk about. Yeah, that was in the notes. That was. Uh, we have notes. Cards. We have notes. <laughs> and it says right here. We have notes. <laughs> <laughs> definitely have notes. Yeah. <laughs> so it was. It was a bit of a challenge because the upshot of having the seventy-person class is that there are like five to ten people per presentation group. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there, there were six people in our group, which meant, and we, we timed this out. We like, yeah. What was your process? What was your process for okay. planning this presentation? We, we were so on the game. I like called a meeting right at the beginning of term, mm-hmm. 
we like talked about what our interests are and we all had like a prospective general field. And then a couple of weeks ago we had another meeting and we said, okay, each of us is going to talk about this specific topic. And then we had to create a five minute speaking part and then have 10 minutes of discussion. That was like how we planned this out. It's an hour and a half long class that, that would hold six 15-minute sections, right? That's how that math works. Mm-hmm. It did not. That'll happen. We are literature students, so I can't fault you there. Dear. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, I think, the kind of, I think, takeaways. One of them is that, yeah, the timing, you, there's almost always going to be something mm-hmm. doesn't go quite as planned. Yeah, I, but I would have thought, like, 10 that's minutes. That's a long each. time. That's a long time. That's, like, solid. To- Say you talked for seven or eight minutes, and you still had seven or eight minutes left, too. Yeah. Well, see, this is one thing. I'm not going to call out my group members, mm-hmm. but there was, like, a lot of difficulty getting it down under five minutes. It's hard working with people, too. Mm-hmm. It's hard. And, like, my group was great. Like, yeah. genuinely. This, yeah, every you person, had a nice people in your group. Yeah, every person was fantastic, but... Every person had a hard time getting their section down under five minutes. Like, when we had our group meeting, I was the only one who had a section that was less than five minutes. Yeah, there's a lot to say. I mean, in my case, presentation on fascism, I didn't want to be a fascist. And, you know, so there, there's dynamics here. There's the human element. There's the time element. These are things you have to think about yeah, and learn from. It's just hard wrangling six people. It's hard wrangling six people. Ever. Yeah, and six people that are passionate about what they want to talk about, people with different personalities. Yeah. It's hard to, it's hard to do a presentation. I'm not really sure how often it'll come up that you're going to do a presentation with eight people. Maybe, I mean, it could happen. You know, I'm not saying it won't happen, but it's definitely like a unique But I'm not, not saying it won't I'm not, not saying that. I would never do that. No. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's the thing that I think in our own ways. I think you did a good job. I thought the presentation was very interesting. Thank you. It's kind of, as I said, it's kind of, canonization to me is kind of like the sociology of literature. So, into yeah. it. It was it was a really interesting topic and sort of what I thought the whole class was going to be about. This <laughs> class that was That's silly you. <laughs> billed as minor modernists. I yeah. thought this would be kind of like the running theme throughout it. Kind of the criti- critique yeah. of the yeah. It has not. It wasn't. It no. has not been. No. It's, we've learned many fascinating things. Mostly about Ezra Pound. And uh, Wyndham Lewis. And a little bit about Walt Woman's penis. <laughs> that, that was just you. <laughs> it might have just been me. But that was in the class. I did learn that. Yeah. Have you did, did you read this paper that I'm specifically talking about? Basically, the paper um, that I read in my research for the rise of fascism and the kind of connection between modernist aesthetics and fascism led me to a lot about Wyndham Lewis and Wyndham Lewis's writing one of which included um, this time that he he's always very very the word I would use scandalized by <laughs> uh, any kind of reference to sexuality. I think he I, I'm not going to try to you know it's his it's his life. It's not my place. You We're know? not here to psychoanalyze. No, it's not my place. But um, he. I'm doing air quotes right now, accidentally, which have I never heard this before, Living Berlin, <laughs> accidentally went to a uh, drag bar, a trans, transvestite bar, I think it was what they called, in the parlance of their times, um, and was just very, very upset and very worked up about it, and then somehow t- t- connected all that to uh, some drawings of what women's penis that some- somehow he also accidentally saw. Wait, wait a minute. I have a question. Yes. I have not read this paper. It's a good paper. I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> when you say it's about inversion. 
It does sound up my alley. It sounds yeah. like something I would be very interested in. When you say drawings of Walt Whitman's penis, mm-hmm. like in in what context did these? It's not clear. He's just very upset. That's the main. He's very upset, and he he found them. I'm not sure where. I don't know how like these kinds of things uh, kind of spread back then. It's not like they had the internet, you know. So yeah. like, I'm not really sure. That's what I mean. Is like you don't accidentally like what are these just like you found them in a gutter like you just <laughs> I, these must be walt women's penis I kind of like i'm not really sure when you were telling me about this that when you said walt women's penis he meant it like philosophically he's like the no, idea no there was he was scandalized and there was um another another I and mean, I think it was actually, like, really his discomfort with homosexuality. Like, the, the story, and again, I, I'm not drawing, I'm not saying anything about Wyndham Lewis, but basically his idea was, like, there's, there's like, he used the idea of men pretending to be women versus men being homosexual as kind of, like, two opposing poles in, in the discourse on inversion and how his idea is, like, one is worse than the other. I'm not going to spoil which one's worse, and to, according to Wyndham Lewis 100 years ago. But, uh, according that was to the his... author of The Jews, are they? Yeah. <laughs> By the way, just uh, not saying that has any bearing on this paper or not, but... Unrelated fact. <laughs> you, did the, you deserve to know. So anyway, that's, um, yeah, you, you can go read that paper if you like. But, uh, Link it in the show uh, notes. Yeah, find that in the description. <laughs> um, yeah, so... Anyway, you gave this presentation this week. Uh, do you have any, anything else you'd like to report? Uh, yes, I also finished the rough draft of my paper on the Dubliners. <laughs> which we, well done. We both have to write. Well done. Yes, we're also in a class about academic writing, which happens to be, to Lorraine's dismay, also focused <laughs> on texts written by modernists. A text. A text. To yeah. be fair. One text only. <laughs> Dubliners by James Joyce. Everyone's um, favorite. <laughs> And yes, um, it is taught by the lovely uh, Dr. Ruth Wishart. She carries this program on her back. We love her. Yes, she is fantastic. She's amazing. She has only one flaw, which is that she assigned the Dubliners mm-hmm. for this. Otherwise, a wonderful person. Yeah. Otherwise, perfect. Um, we are happy to know her. Um, and yes, how was that? <laughs> um, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> Funny you should ask. I'm actually really happy with the topic I ended up. Yeah, um, it's very, it's beautiful, actually. I think it's a beautiful topic. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, can I tell the audience? <laughs> I give my consent to tell the audience. Thanks. Thanks, Lily. <laughs> um, so, uh, it may already be obvious that I hate Dubliners with a sort of burning passion that most people reserve <laughs> for, like, their exes. Um, <laughs> I, just, I just, he's so annoying. And to be fair, I am basing this entirely on the Dubliners because I haven't read any of his other books. The Dubliners is I haven't read so, any of his other books either. Ugh, every every single story has exactly the same trajectory. Yeah, it's kind of a bummer, to be yeah. honest. It's like, just over and over yeah, again. Yeah, it's the same story over and over. It, it, I would agree with that. It's the same. Epiphany and paralysis. You know, I can't say too much about James Joyce, though, because he wasn't a fascist. So I don't feel like that's actually a meaningful point in his favor. <laughs> like, wow, you weren't a fascist. Great, great job. True, but just because he was of, slightly less terrible than Ezra Pound does not. I'm make curious him to know what their relationship was. Contentious, I assume, from Ezra's point of view. Joyce was probably like, "Can you just publish Ulysses?" 
for some reason you're so, you, you decide all of this. I'm not really sure how or why that happened, <laughs> but can you please just publish? Yeah, I think that's pretty much the sum of it. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so <clears throat> Dubliner's paper. What did you write your Dubliner's paper about? Because I hate the Dubliners so much, um, I decided to write my paper on a uh, short student film that was based on uh, the short story Araby from the Dubliners. Um, and this film is phenomenally more interesting and better than the story. It's like, it transposes the story into 21st century New York. It has some really interesting artistic choices, some like interesting use of Disney film clips in it. Um, and it was made by a like 18 year old high school student. Um, so the focus for my paper is how this teenager represents the interiority of the child protagonist in comparison to how Joyce represents a child um, being as he was an adult when he wrote Dubliners. You know what I'm just thinking about as you say that? Mm -hmm. From the sociological perspective, I think we've talked casually about the way that um, the life course has changed also. So that I think adulthood and adolescence and the concept of young adulthood are, are new and they have changed since they... So I wonder, I mean, <laughs> you're not going to do any further reading on this. You're not going to do any further on, <laughs> on Dubliners. I might write another but, <laughs> but I wonder, But I wonder how that plays into it as well. Because I feel like what it means to be, what it meant to be, I don't know, how old was James Joyce? Was he like in his 30s? I'm kind of guessing. I don't think he was that old. Like I don't think he was old when you wrote, uh, wrote Dubliners because it was, I think it was his first young, thing. Right? I think so. I mean, who didn't back then? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> uh, Ezra Pound like, kept living God, until the fucking oh 70s. God, yeah. There's no justice Jeez. in this world. Um, yeah. But yeah, he must have been like late 20s, early 30s. Yeah, and I think what it meant to be someone in your late 20s or early 30s back then was very different also to what it means now, mm-hmm. which is just a thing to think about, I think, um, because I think that that kind of – I think that there there was. There was just less of this kind of finding yourself. I think also the kind of economy. I mean, everything for me as a materialist comes kind of back to the economy and the way that we – shape our social lives around it um but i would say that being yeah being a late 20s early 30s um i think it was a was much more of being an adult than i think being in your late 20s early 30s is today is being an adult <laughs> we're like four years out from that yeah so. thinking about the late 20s early 30s people i know <laughs> different times different <laughs> vibes uh different stage in the life course etc so so i don't know i think that maybe that's kind of interesting yeah. Also, he was like, also, I think not only because of this kind of young adulthood and the kind of economic realities people are facing now, but also because people were dying when they were like 47. I mean, it was like a lifespan. I think I read that somewhere. Don't quote, I mean, I'm not really sure, but it was a lot. German History Museum actually said the lifespan of like turn of the century was. And that was, they like raised it. Because they had, like, some new vaccines or something. And so their lifespan raised, but it was low. It was, like, surprisingly low. Now, to be fair, I think that factors in child mortality. I Probably. believe, like, these statistics Probably. are, like, heavily skewed because so many really? people died Damn. before, like, the age of five. That's stupid. That's, like, a really... That's... I think, like, if you if you take the... God. Um, How could they publish that and be like, this is fine? 
Whatever. Well, actually, this is related to what uh, I was talking about a little earlier with conceptions of the medieval as this, like, horrible, horrible time. Mm -hmm. People always want to believe that the past sucked so that the present can be better. Yes, this is key, and also in the dialectic. This is also a very modernist thing to do, is the, like, everything that came before was just so terrible, unlike us. better, yeah. But, like... We're all the same. We're all trapped in the same mire, let me tell you. Anyway. (laughs) But, like, the... Like, objectively, the 20th century was pretty garbagey. Mm-hmm. And, like, just because we got our child mortality rates down doesn't mean that, like, life was so much better that we we are suddenly, that those of us who make it to adulthood are suddenly living 50 years longer. And this takes on its own implications when you think today about the way that we view the developing world versus the developed world as uh, from the kind of discourse of international development which I rarely get to plug in, but I'm going to do it right now, um, that um, we tend to think the same about kind of, I think these kind of conceptions of development versus undeveloped, developed versus undeveloped, um, are laden with all kinds of like really messed up assumptions. And one of them, I think, is that life, because when we talk about development, we're speaking about their economies and other economies are developed under capitalism. And that's kind of seen as the goal or the benchmark. And for all the kind of childhood mortality, all these diseases that we've cured, we, we've had surges of, of uh, other types of diseases, of degenerative diseases, diabetes, heart disease, um, depression, anxiety, suicide, alcoholism, addiction, like, you know, so I, I think it's, you have to, you have to really be careful about kind of where you're situated, I think, when you're trying to analyze historical eras, uh, what do I want to say? Literary movements, countries. You have to figure out where you're situated, which is also very epistemological as well. You have to think about kind of what assumptions are you prefacing your your ideas on. It's also not a coincidence that people love to talk about the developing world in ways that make them seem like old fashioned or like, yes, backwards. Yeah. Yes. This is like absolutely part of the. There's like this linearity, which is also, um, speaking of my Dubliners paper, our conceptions of time are also very much linked to capitalism. And I think the way that you're behind us and there's this narrative, rather than, you know, there's differences, it's like you are behind us and you're trying to catch up and that's your primary focus and goal. And that there are like value laden reasons why we are ahead of you, which can be quite disturbing, actually. People don't don't really critique that, I think, enough in in the development discourse as we're saying. Now, speaking of that, Lily, what have you been working on this week? What have I been working on this week? I'm perpetually working on various uh, things related to um, writing about fascism. Right now I'm working on, and in the last week I have, my, my new thing, my new kind of approach to get over kind of some of the anxieties, I think, of starting a term paper is just to like what I call vomit out a draft. So, um, and Lorraine actually inspired me on this because she's, she spoke about the way we have to write a 7,500 word term paper, which which is both of us come from the North American school system. That's not like, that's not like, I feel my term papers didn't necessarily even have word limits. So it just wasn't really something that I thought about. And, And as much as maybe the first thought is like writing a 7,500 word term paper is a, you know, how will I make that word count? But also, like, how do I choose a topic that I can fully articulate within that word count that's not going to go into being my master's thesis? Mm-hmm. It's kind of this, it's, it's, to me, it's just an arbitrary number of words to talk about an arbitrary topic. So I'm writing about um, the way, the relationship between um, the tenant, how, how I put it is that 
to what extent did the tenets of modernism lend themselves to the rise of fascism? That's my research question. I'm still working on my thesis, but basically my idea is that I want to um, kind of, as Lorraine suggested I do, is to view it as if I'm writing an essay exam. So to take a few hours and just sit down and write whatever I, comes to me off the top of my head on this topic. I did a mind map. I kind of thought about like what are the necessary um, angles and topics I need to flesh out to make this argument. And I did that. And then I just kind of sat down and wrote and compiled also a list of sources and realized I've read like 30 papers on this already. <laughs> I have more that I want to read, but like that's enough. Because there's always, you have to realize there's going to be a point where you can't read everything. And reading papers, to really read a paper, for me, it can take a long time. It can take an afternoon. Some, some papers take all day if I'm re- really trying to sit down and read it. Some papers are long. Some of them are heavy lifting. They take a lot to think about. And when they're about fascism, they can be like emotionally draining. That's well. an important point as well. Um, so... Uh, I did that. I'm not fully done, but um, yeah, I think I'm at 3,300 words right now. Which is amazing. Thank you. Because like, you. I, th- <laughs> I think most people haven't even, don't even know what they're going to write about. <laughs> like me, for example. Yeah. You know, but uh, we have a while. We have uh, probably almost two months until we really have to hand it in, actually, which I forget. I mean, when you say really way. have to hand it in? That's kind of a vague term. That also is, because, I mean, technically, there's people who I've spoken to who are still working on their term papers from last semester. Yeah, and <laughs> I, from from last year, two semesters ago. So it, ha- it can happen. I, I'm, I think it's important to remember that, yeah, these deadlines are not fixed. But I am going to be away from March, so... Uh, so I did that. Uh, what else did I do? I also worked on my Dubliners paper which is about the way that um, conceptions of temporality are dictated by um, the integration of societies into capitalism, which to me is very interesting because I think our experience of time is a very intimate thing. And to think that even something like that is very much governed by capitalist abstraction and ideology is quite, I don't know, that, that, I think that was a pretty stark insight for me. But I'm also over writing about Dubliners, to be honest. So I think that's pretty much what I did this last week. Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Have you started thinking about the abstract we're supposed to write? Oh, I wrote that this morning. Remember when I was telling you that I was just like laying in my bed, being <laughs> feeling around in the dark, like just pounding away? Yeah, I wrote my abstract this morning. I'm not saying that it's done. <laughs> I, I, I actually, I'm really not saying that it's done. I'm not even being coy. It's not done. Um, but I think soon, I don't know how much more I'm going to look at it because we're going to be workshopping them. So I figure. Yeah, she wants us to hand them in to like workshop them. Okay. Uh, I thought we were like going to be presenting them ooh, in, on maybe, Tuesday. We're maybe. doing like a student conference on Tuesday. Right. That's what we're doing. That's a uh, student conference workshop. And by student conference, we mean... <laughs> Our class is going to be... <laughs> yeah, I think they're going to be, like, on a PowerPoint. They're, they are going to be on a PowerPoint. Oh. And I think that we're going to probably be, like, ripping them apart. No, probably not ripping them apart, but I think we're going to... I think you're right. We're going to be presenting them. But, but then I think we're going to be, like, getting, kind of getting feedback. Okay. But that's oh, important okay. to keep in mind, because it's going gonna, it's gonna to be projected on the... Yeah, okay. That's important to keep in mind. Anyway, so I'm working on that. I have no idea what I'm going to title this darn thing, to be honest, but I think generally I, I grabbed, grasped what I wanted to, what I, what I would say. Um, 
I feel I feel like there is an art to writing an abstract, but I also feel like if you if you know it's a twenty five hundred word paper, so I feel like it's not. Some abstracts are harder than others. Like this abstract I wrote for the conference about post truth is like a much more complex thing to try to fit into a small space. But I feel I'm not going to write a five hundred word abstract on a twenty five hundred word. No. So Solid I, no. I, I just try to like think about what would I what are like the points, what are the theories and, and kind of theoretical framework I'm drawing on, um, what are kind of my main arguments, and then like try to come up with like somewhat of a punchy concluding sentence and Which is very important. I know. I just can't I can't like spend that much time on Dumbliners without getting just really bored. <laughs> I just get really bored when I'm when I'm doing it and I so I had to like really put it into like small bits when I'm working on this because I'm just like not, I'm not that excited about the topic anymore. But yeah, I wrote that this morning. I think if I have like one solid afternoon or like two lazy ones, I could probably finish the paper enough to hand it in. That would be fantastic. I'm really hoping to have everything from my other classes besides the modern modernist fascist paper done by uh, this week. Wow, the lofty goal. Yeah. Also working. I work at a cafe now. But, yeah, otherwise, that's my goal. That's what I'm saying. I'm like, this is my, like, last social engagement this weekend, and then after that I'm just, <laughs> see ya. <laughs> I don't know. I shouldn't, I, I, I do this. I, this is my uh, pitfall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At some point we should talk about that. Come up for air. Yeah. Yeah, it's important to come up for air. Mm-hmm. I know that. I continually demonstrate that to myself the hard way, but one, one of these days I'm going <laughs> to get it right, but... I think I think what I do is I set kind of insane I mean not insane but like just goals for myself that kind of based on the like presupposition that I'm a robot because in actuality like I'm a human being I have feelings I have I have a certain what like attention span you know I have I have other needs to attend to and I think um I don't know I think I'm a very overachieving person so it can be easy to kind of be in a hyped up mood and be like I'm gonna spend nine hours every day for the next five days working on this it's gonna be fine (laughs) and then day two I'm like (laughs) no and sometimes what I do is as as I almost well like pivot in the other direction and that's why I think it's important to figure out how to pace yourself and set realistic goals because sometimes I think you can almost lash out I'm not sure if that's the right word but yeah, I think sometimes I have this other urge to be like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go out all night and I'm going to ruin the next two days. Right. <laughs> so, but I mean, I think that's, that the key is to respect your limits and to figure out how to work in like a, a more realistic way. Yeah. And find ways of recharging and taking breaks that are really helpful for you. Mm-hmm. And I think everyone's different this way. Yes. I very much find that if my breaks involve sitting at my computer in any way. Mm. They're not actually breaks. Even if I'm watching Netflix. Very true. That's very, very true. So. And, uh, yeah. Also, like, I think that you're good on this. Because I, I, Lauren, I think, is very good at kind of working smart in terms of also understanding, like, where your limitations are and where you work best. And I think kind of in, in the same vein, knowing kind of where you work and being able to separate your workspace from your... I don't know, fun space? <laughs> From your living space. Your living space. It's like, if you do all your work in your living space, then your whole life is work. Yeah. And, I mean, I love what we do. Mm-hmm. I know you do, too. too. But, like, if... 
if you don't have any distinction between them, then I feel like it's very easy to feel guilty if you're ever not working. Like, it doesn't even matter if you have anything to work on. Yeah. Because you always can invent something yeah. to work on. And then you end up, like, stressing yourself out over yeah. no, non-existent. Your work. own idea, like, your own, I mean, this is, this is, she just described me, I feel attacked <laughs> right now. Um, but, <laughs> this was a call <laughs> But, um, I mean, yes, I think that's really important because I think kind of an abstract goal I have, though, is to um, work less but work efficiently. And I think in that vein, if you're someone that maybe gets stuck in this kind of guilt blame capitalism (laughs) but if you're you're stuck in a kind of guilt that like you measure your kind of worth or or like the satisfaction you have in a day based on how productive you were um i think it's important to also note that like this is all part of the process as well i think that if you are constantly like you're not you're never like fully refocusing I, i think that that actually takes away from your kind of creative ability and your ability to generate new ideas or to gain inspiration that is necessary for ideas to mature because i think when you're not working, your brain is still working. Not everything is happening on this kind of really like conscious uh, level. A lot of things are happening in a more subconscious way. And you could be taking a walk and, and see something and get a burst of inspiration about an idea or a problem that you were having a hard time solving. I think that that's an important element in terms of uh, developing or thinking or creating anything. So, yeah, if that's what it takes for you to take a break, you heard it from me. <laughs> you heard it here first. Yes. <laughs> from, so. from this scholarly source. We're scholars. <laughs> We're scholars. This is, is this, yeah. It's a source. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. that's what I have to say about that. For me in this way, it's really important for me to, for my breaks to involve other people mm. for this reason. Yeah. Because like, if my break involves me being alone, then I feel like a large part of my brain is still thinking about my work because I love my work. Yeah. I'm yeah, very true. Very true. But if if I'm talking to someone else, mm-hmm. as we are doing right now, yeah, that is like very useful. A complete, a complete refocusing. Yes, I, mean. I think that's really good, and I, I think um, it can help also just to verbalize your thoughts. Yes, I feel like just talking to Lorraine has actually helped me to come to a lot of conclusions that maybe I was kind of stumped about until I articulated just in a conversational way. I think that's also a, a useful thing if you're writing a paper and you feel anxious or stuck is to just pretend that you're just talking to a friend or talk to an actual friend yeah. <laughs> if you have one handy. And, um, if you have a friend. <laughs> I won't judge you if you're just talking out loud to yourself. <laughs> Whatever. That's between you and yourself. Right. <laughs> you, you do what you need to do to write a paper. It's all I'm saying. But anyway, um, I think that that can be really useful just to sometimes get over the roadblock in in your thinking or in your ideas and I also feel like it's important to take care of your health like I I really love doing yoga I think trying to eat like some food with some nutrition going outside oh uh, it's not it's not necessarily the most ideal condition to go outside in winter in Berlin but fresh air is important um it's important to move around it's important to um find ways that help you to relax um, I, I don't think anyone's doing their best work when they're really stressed out and tense, even if you feel like exerting that kind of pressure on yourself. So I feel like all these kinds of things ultimately make you a better scholar, a better thinker. So they're important. Absolutely. Maybe pet a dog if you can find one. That, that would, would be, be, yeah. That's an added bonus. Something something fluffy. It yeah. doesn't have to be a dog. It could be a cat. 
It could be a stuffed platypus. Yeah, sure. Choose your own adventure. <laughs> Sky's the limit. 